Chapter the Fourteenth of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Jabez goes into the world. A sharp illness followed the precipitation of Jabez into the Irk, but he was young, had a strong constitution, and to the satisfaction of all in the college, and many out of it, was able to take his place in the refectory and clear the beef or the potato pie from his wooden trencher before the month expired. Prior to this he was allowed an afternoon, ere he was well enough to resume fully his routine duties, to show himself to the kind friends who had exhibited most anxiety for his recovery. Mrs. Clues was one of these. Jam, jelly and cakes, never concocted within the area of the college, had found their way to his bedside. Grateful for kindness from so unlikely a quarter, Jabez paid his first visit to the shop in Half Street to thank the queer old lady. But not one word of thanks would she hear. "'Eh, hey, lad, say naught about it. You did your duty, and I did mine, so we quits.' And she shook her open hand a few inches in advance of her face, as if she were shaking a disclaimer out of it. "'And where are you taking your white face to now?' she asked quickly, the better to turn the tide of his stammering thanks. "'To Aunt Bessie's. "'Why, lad, Bess Clegg'll have naught to give thee fit for sick folk to eat. "'It's much to me if she'll have either a potato or a drop of milk. "'If she's a bit of jannock or oat-cake, it's as much as the bargain. "'War may be glorious for kings and generals, but it's awful for poor folk. "'Mesters can't sell their goods.' and can't pay wages bout money. And I've heard that, since the potato riots in Shudil last spring, the folk have been so clemmed that some of them couldna be known by the friends who hadna seen em for a while. They were naught but skin and bone, poor things. Whilst indulging in this tirade against war and its concomitants to distract his attention, she bustled about, often with her back to him, then dived into her parlour and returned with a basket, which she was handing to him with a charge to take that to Bess and be sure to bring the basket back safe, when she found that Joshua Brooks was standing behind Jabez, amongst waiting customers, with a sharp eye on her proceedings. "'I say, young cheat the fishes, what have you got to say for yourself? A nice young ragamuffin you are, to go a-bathing without leave, spoiling your clothes and giving yourself cold. I hope they gave you plenty of physic to teach you better.' said Joshua roughly, taking the boy by the shoulder and turning him sharply round to confront him. "'Yes, sir, they gave me plenty of physic,' said Jabez, doffing his cap respectfully. "'But I did not go bathing. I got into the water by accident.' "'By what? Do you call that an accident?' growled the parson, to get at the boy's meaning. "'An accident done a purpose.' chimed in Mrs. Clues, while her scales jingled, and she and her helper weighed out her commodities for the people at the counter. "'Yes, sir,' answered Jabez composedly. "'It must have been an accident. I don't think they really could mean to push me over. I think they only meant to frighten me.' "'Well,' queried Joshua, seeing that he hesitated, "'I think one of them slipped and let go, and then I slipped too, sir,' he replied modestly. "'Slipped, indeed! You had very nearly slipped into the next world!' exclaimed the parson. 
I suppose you'll say next that my poor old father was dragged about by the young wretches by accident, too. The colour of Jabez rose. No, sir, that was very cruel. Oh, you do call some things by their right names. Here, let that woman pass out. I suppose you're glad enough the rascals have got their deserts. A dubious change came over the boy's face. He did not answer at once. He hardly knew his own feelings on the subject. The question was repeated. Well, sir, I'm glad they won't be there to torment me any more, but it must be a very dreadful thing for a young gentleman to be turned out of school in disgrace, and I don't think I ought to be glad of that. I should never get over it if it was me. Here, take your basket and be off with you, said Joshua Brooks, hurrying him out of the shop that he might stay and rate the old woman. For spoiling young cheat the fishes, conscious all the while that he had been doing his best to get the lad a good home in the future. Bess and Simon received him with open arms, glad not only to see him well again, but thankful he had been placed where he was secure from the bitter wants which pinched both their stomachs and their faces. To them, Mrs. Clue's basket brought what they had not seen for months a white loaf and a good lump of cold meat, to say nothing of a tiny paper of tea and some sugar, those luxuries of the rich, and half a crown in another paper. How those half-famishing hard workers whose home had been denuded of their goods to keep life within them thanked old Mrs. Clues. She had made it a festival to them indeed, and all for the sake of the boy they had kept. There were no pigeons, these had been sold long ago to pay for provisions, though much against Simon's will. The cat was there, lean and gaunt. It managed to pick up a subsistence somehow, and the big Bible was there. Simon had not parted with that, though the bright bureau was gone, aye, and the cradle which had been an ark to the orphan. The change touched Jabez sorely. Snugly housed and fed within the college, Rumours of outer poverty made no lasting impression, but here he saw its grim reality, and sitting down on the three-legged stool, he covered his face with his hands to hide the tears called up by that insight into their impoverished condition. Yet they had some alleviation of their pain. Poverty appeared to have lost half its bitterness for Bess. She had had a letter from her long-mourned Tom, and the joyful news served to brighten up the visit for Jabez and all. It was a long and deeply repentant letter, of course, written by a comrade. It was dated from Badajoz, and had been a weary while in reaching them. He had been wounded in that brilliant assault, and while in hospital had fallen in with another Lancashire lad, also wounded, no other than the boy who had lent a hand to rescue the infant Jabez, and who had been driven to enlist by the sharp pangs of hunger only two years before. From this young fellow, Private John Smith, Tom was himself a corporal, he had learned how grievously his Bess had been slandered, but with that knowledge had come the conviction that he had condemned her hastily and harshly on mere hearsay, and the letter was incoherent in its remorseful contrition. In his soldier life he had been tossed hither and thither, known pain and thirst and famine, and said he owed it all to his own jealous credulity, when he ought to have known so much better. He told of marchings and counter-marchings, battles and bloodshed, but of never one wound to himself, 
though he had not cared a cast of the shuttle for his life until that bayonet thrust which had laid him side by side with John Smith, who had lost an eye. But he wound up with a prayer for Bess and himself, and a hope for their reunion if the war should ever end. He was sick of it. All that letter was to Bess and Simon, Jabez could not comprehend, but he took Mrs. Clue's her empty basket, and went back to the college satisfied that one ray of sunshine lit up the poor home of his friends, and Matthew Cooper's last chance was gone. Mr. Ashton was what is known in trade as a smallware manufacturer, that is, he was a weaver of tapes, inkles, filletings, silk, cotton and worsted laces for furniture, carpet bindings, brace-webs and fringes. Moreover, he manufactured braces and umbrellas, for which latter his brother-in-law supplied the ginghams. He had at work, both in Manchester and at Whaley Bridge, a number of swivel engines, the design of which came from those unrivalled tape-weavers, the Dutch, and which would weave twenty-four lengths of tape or bed-lace at one time. Otherwise, the bulk of his workpeople, winders, warpers, brace, fringe and umbrella-makers, carried away materials to their own homes, and brought back their work in a finished state. Mr. Chadwick, as we have mentioned, was a manufacturer of ginghams. This included checks and fustians, but much of his trade being foreign, the war had locked up his resources, and his anxieties preyed on his health. Mr. Ashton had suffered less in this particular, not having disdained to take his sensible wife's advice. Never put too many eggs in one basket. Mrs. Ashtonby, it said, had a leaning towards proverbial philosophy, more homely and terse than Tupper's, which, vulgar as it is accounted now, was in esteem when our century was young, and had it been otherwise, would have been equally impressive from her deliberately modulated utterance. This same lady had, moreover, an aptitude for business. Mr. Ashton employed a number of young women, and Mrs. Ashton might be found most days in the warehouse, either putting out or inspecting the work brought in by them, with a gingham wrapper over her silken sheen. If the footman announced visitors, the wrapper was thrown aside in a moment, and she stepped into her drawing-room as though fresh from her toilette, and with no atmosphere of dozens, grosses or great grosses about her. She was wont to say, the eye of a master does more work than both his hands. Accordingly, in house or warehouse, her active supervision kept other hands from idling, and she certainly dignified whatever duties she undertook, whether she used hands or eyes only. In those days, a seven years' apprenticeship to any trade or business was deemed essential. Apprentices were part and parcel of commercial economy, and when Mr. Ashton spoke, of looking after that boy, it was that he thought Jabez Clegg bade fair to be a fitter inmate and a more reliable servant than others whose terms were about to expire. Through his friend, the Reverend Joshua Brooks, he ascertained the boy's age and other particulars, and sought the house governor, Mr. Terry, and laid before him a proposition to take Jabez Clegg as his apprentice on very fair terms. He then learned that Mr. Shaw, the saddler at the bottom of Market Street Lane, was also desirous to obtain the same blue-coat boy as an apprentice, his friend the leather breeches-maker having named the lad to him. At the Easter meeting of Fee-Fees, 
both proposals were laid before them. Simon Clegg, as standing in loco parentis to Jabez, being present. After some little discussion, Mr. Ashton's proposal was accepted, to the great satisfaction of the tanner, and in a few days Jabez was transferred to his new master for mutual trial until Ascension Day, when, if all parties were satisfied, his indentures would be signed. As the governor said, it had been but the toss of a button, whether he had gone to Mr. Shaw or Mr. Ashton. Yet upon that toss of a button, the whole future of Jabez depended. The boy entered on his new career under good auspices. That is, he bore with him a good character for steadiness and probity, though nothing was said of brilliant parts, or any special talent which he possessed. Indeed, his schoolmaster had said that only his indomitable perseverance had enabled him to keep pace with others. If he had any latent genius, any particular vocation, no one had discovered it. His faculty for disfiguring doors and walls with devices in coloured chalks, picked up amongst the gravel, had been matter for punishment, not praise, and none but the college boys themselves cared to know where the fresh patterns for purses and pincushions came from. Steadiness, perseverance, probity, they were good materials out of which to manufacture a tradesman, so Mr. Ashton thought, and congratulations were mutual. Jabez Clegg went with his new outfit to his new home under good auspices, inasmuch as both master and mistress were prepossessed in his favour, and they stood in the foremost rank of those who began to recognise that English apprentices were not bond-slaves in heathendom. Instead of being crammed to sleep like dogs in holes under counters, left to wash at a pump and wipe themselves where they could, obliged to sit at a table in a back kitchen, and dip their spoons into one common dish of porridge, or potatoes and buttermilk, to eat such scraps and refuse as sordid employers or ill-disposed cooks chose to set before their primitive Adamite forks. Instead of a system like this, from which apprentices, of whatever grade only emerged at the beginning of this century, the Ashton's apprentices had a comfortable dormitory in the attic, there was a coarse jack-towel by the scullery sink for their use. They had their meals with the servants in the kitchen, where there was an oak settle by the fire for them when work was over. But work did not end with the close of the warehouse. They were expected to keep their attic clean and in order, to cleanse the wooden or pewter platters or porringers from which they had dined or supped, to rinse the horns which had held their table beer, to fetch and carry wood, coals and water, for servants too lazy to do their own work and it was not much rest any apprentice had from five or six in a morning until eight or nine at night when he went to his bed. As the youngest apprentice, the roughest of this work fell on Jabez, but luckily his training had made him equal to the occasion, though Kezia, the red-faced cook, set herself steadfastly to dislike him, because Mr. Ashton had bespoken her favour for him. In the warehouse, too, the evident goodwill of principles roused the jealousy of underlings, so that good auspices had their corresponding drawbacks. It was not much of a pleasure to Jabez to find Kit Townley also seated as an apprentice on the kitchen settle, but the youth seemed disposed to be friendly, and Jabez forbore to create a grievance by recalling unpleasant reminiscences. With Kit Townley, who was his senior by a year, a heavy premium had been paid, and on this he was inclined to presume 
but neither Mr. nor Mrs. Ashton made any social distinction between the twain, and Jabez was strong enough to hold his own. During the few weeks' probation, Jabez was transferred from department to department, alike to test his capacity and his own liking for the business. Both proved satisfactory. On Ascension Day, 1813, there was another appearance in that ancient room before the college magnates, many of whom, as officers in volunteer regiments, were in full-dress uniform. A dinner pending. The indentures had to be signed. The premium of four pound, returnable to the boy when his term expired, had to be paid. Simon Clegg's best clothes had long been lost in the pawnbroker's bottomless pit, but someone unknown, mayhap Mrs. Clues or Mrs. Clough, had sent him overnight a suit of fresh ones, pronounced by him and Bess, welly as good as new, and he presented himself for the important ceremony, overlooked by the painted face of the orphan's benevolent friend Humphrey Chetham, as proud almost of his own restored respectability as of the part he was about to perform. When it came to his turn to sign the document, the little man took the pen with a flourish, as if he were a hero about to perform some mighty action. He stooped to the heavy oaken table, bent his head low, alternately to the right and left, and with his fingers, in an unaccountable crump, imprinted his self-taught signature in Roman capitals thereon, then handed back the quill, as if to say, The deed is done. Governor, schoolmaster and fee-fees congratulated Mr. Ashton and Jabez both. Simon, with moist eyes, shook Jabez by the hand, and holding the boy's shoulder with his left to look the better in his clear dark eyes, said with deliberate emphasis, Jabez, lad, I'm proud on you this day, but mind, that's an honourable name. Do nought to disgrace it, and your fortune's made. Jabez was too abashed to make reply at the time, but at the supper given in the Mosley Street kitchen to mark his installation at Mr. Ashton's, to which Bess and Simon were both invited, Jabez contrived to whisper, "'You needn't clem any more, Bess. I'll give you all me wages.'" End of chapter the 14th